A massive explosion has torn through the Lebanese capital, Beirut. Lebanon's prime minister says his country is facing a catastrophe and Beirut is in mourning. It was a massive explosion. Hello friends, it's Alpha Bunga Bunga. The date is Wednesday the 12th of August. My name is Alex Hokuli and this podcast is also George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. George is away this week, so it's just Phil and myself today, plus our guest will be calling up very shortly, and the producer of this episode is myself, Alex Hokuli. Right, with that out of the way, today's episode concerns Lebanon's incredibly profound and multi-layered crisis. Uh, by my reading, it's pretty much a state that's falling apart. Now, obviously, there's the explosion and everyone will have seen the images of it and the aftermath that devastated so much of Beirut, uh, which killed hundreds, it injured thousands and left something like 300,000 homeless. And uh, you'll probably also have heard and read about the reasons that we know so far about the explosion itself. Something like 3,000 tons of ammonium nitrate were stored in the port for over six years. Uh, Deadly cargo abandoned there by a Moldovan flagship, which is owned by a Russian resident in Cyprus en route from Georgia to Mozambique. Uh, That whole story of malfeasance in shipping, including so-called flags of convenience and unpaid crew and much else, is actually a story for another episode and is something that we might wish to uh, discuss at another moment. Um, But for now, uh, we should note that that explosion also hit the grain silo, uh, the main store of, uh, of, of Lebanon's grain. Uh, and the port in a country where something like 80% of its food is imported and where, due to the economic crisis, uh, food insecurity had already been rising. So I just want to set out, before we go any further and bring Phil in, the sort of compounding crises that are affecting Lebanon. So, I mean, you've got the history and, in fact, the current reality of foreign interference, sectarianism and a stagnant political system which was built on allocating different bits of the state to warlords that came out of Lebanon civil wars in the 70s and 80s. You've got a hugely corrupt elite, uh, waves of Syrian refugees, something like 1.5 million there now, which amounts to a staggering 30% of the population. Uh, And that's adding to the existing Palestinian refugees who have been there for decades. And then you've got this massive economic crisis, which is all sorts of economic crises bundled into one. It's a debt crisis, a budgetary crisis, a currency crisis, and a financial crisis all piled into one. And of course, lest we forget, there's the pandemic and then this explosion. I mean, the, the, the images are absolutely shocking. I think the it was equivalent to something like a one to two kiloton bomb, which I'm informed is equivalent to something like a small nuclear weapon. So, I mean, it, it's hard to even really grasp the, the sort of different layers all at once that are, that are in, uh, impacting upon Lebanon right now. And I think it's uh, um, it's there's so many indeed uh, so many of um, like you say layers to Lebanon's problems. It's easy to um, to be overwhelmed um, just by the sheer scale of what's going going on there. So I think it's worth stepping kind of stepping back just for a moment to draw out some of the wider resonance of the story too. Um, I mean, as you said, Alex, what was so shocking about it, partly beyond the loss of life and the physical devastation, 
was the fact that, and the, I mean, you know, the enormity of the blast was captured so widely on mobile phone footage and shared on social media, and that all obviously made it all um, so much more real uh, to everyone who saw it. Because um, I suppose everyone could imagine themselves um, filming it on the mobile phone. You're in, you're kind of in the, you're in you, the video yourself when you watch, uh, when you watch some of the, when you watch that kind of footage on your on your phone or your device. So. Nonetheless, despite everything that has made it so um, palpable and intense uh, to people all over the world, I think it also speaks to some wider global themes that we've been exploring on this podcast for some time. Um, and the first, I suppose, is the degradation of public infrastructure and state capacity around the world over the last several decades through neoliberal grifts of various kinds. The second, I suppose, would be identity politics or the specter of identity politics, of which Lebanon's history of communal rivalry, division, sectarianism is a particularly intense example. And then um, that this also intersects with politics of corruption and anti-corruption. And anti-corruption um, is also uh, being offered as a way to kind of cleanse and restore uh, Lebanon's political system, and that Lebanon has been through these cycles of popular revolt in recent times, um, which have all failed, in, as we've seen um, with the blast, they've all failed to make um, significant headway in transforming Lebanon's political system and state structures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm very excited to have this discussion and to speak to our guest today, uh, despite the circumstances which have prompted us to do so. In fact, uh, we've been discussing ourselves about doing an episode on Lebanon already since last year, since the October protests emerged, uh, and we never really got round to it. Those protests, actually, it's interesting because they coincide with the sort of 30-year anniversary of the Taif Agreement uh, of 1989, which was exactly what established the post-Civil War settlement in Lebanon, which, uh, as I mentioned just a second ago, you know, it institutionalized the sectarian arrangements that have riven Lebanon. Um, but it also created this immobile political system, which fuels corruption and impedes the development of any majoritarian, universalist or class-based politics. Um, and so, you know, Phil mentioned their identity politics. And of course, we wouldn't want to read what's going on in Lebanon through the prism of what's happening in Western countries right now. Uh, they're different, they're different things. But at the same time, there is something more general happening there of a tussle of a struggle between particularist and universalist politics, uh, which hopefully we'll be able to draw out with our guest. We're going to call up in just a second. Uh, let me just introduce her. She's Rima Majed. She's a sociology professor at the American University of Beirut and an activist. Um, and as well as covering the current situation there, uh, we hope she'll be able to guide us through Lebanon's recent history so we can understand how we got to where we are right now and uh, later go into a little bit more depth uh, in the issues which uh, which Phil just mentioned. So let's call up Rima right now. Okay, hi Rima. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, delighted to have you with us to talk us through uh, so many of these complex issues. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me. Yeah, I'm, I'm uh, very excited to have this uh, discussion. So um, as a way of setting the scene for us, uh, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit about where you were when the blast actually happened. And I'm aware you've just been telling us <laughs> right before we started recording uh, that you've told this story of a number of times. Um, but just as a way of setting the scene and uh, getting us all collectively into the headspace of, of what uh, it's been like as well in, in Beirut for the past week. Yeah, so I was in Beirut uh, uh, when this happened. And, and of course, I mean, uh, as I was just telling you, I, I survived and I think my story is... Uh, is, is probably not as um, uh, you know horrible as other stories. Uh, 
I, I'm, uh, I live just across um, uh, the street from the university, uh, from the American University of Beirut, so in the district of Hamra, for those who know uh, Beirut. Uh, I had just arrived to a, to a side, um, to a cafe where I was meeting with my friends. Um, we had just uh, met and I, I, I had just ordered my coffee um, that afternoon. Actually, we were meant to meet earlier and, and that day, for some reason, we decided to reschedule until 6 p.m., um, the the blast happened at 6:08. Um, we were sitting when when it happened when the first one uh, when the first explosion happened, and everyone thought it was a, an earthquake because we didn't hear anything. We just uh, the, we just felt that the earth under our feet uh, under our feet were uh, was shaking. But it it took less than a minute. We were still debating whether it was an earthquake or an explosion when the the second huge uh, explosion happened, and. I can't remember the details. Uh, we were sitting in a, on, um, uh, in a uh, sidewalk cafe, uh, so underneath a building. And all I remember is that glass from everywhere, I mean, the whole building uh, windows fell on us. Uh, I was lucky enough um, you know, to, to survive. My friends around me were, uh, some of them very badly injured. Um, the friend I, I had just met in the cafe uh, was was badly injured and uh, we had to take her to uh, an, an emergency room, room uh, quickly. Um, but at that moment, we all thought that the explosion had happened exactly in our neighborhood. It was so strong. And I say this as someone who's uh, who's lived through many many explosions uh, in Beirut. I was mm. I was actually in the same place in 2005 when the Hariri assassination happened, and that was enormous. Uh, but what 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 we've witnessed on uh, Tuesday last week was way uh, you know the magnitude of it was unbelievable. Um, so we thought it had we thought it had happened exactly in our street. Uh, we couldn't get into any of the hospitals around. There are about five hospitals in that district. Uh, uh, most of them were either damaged or already at capacity minutes after the explosion. So we took a cab and thought that we would get away uh, from from the explosion scene and cross to the other side of the city. Um, but as we were driving around, we started to realize that, you know, all every neighborhood we'd get to was equally, if not more badly hit. So it, we started to realize that this was something huge that had happened. And uh, uh, I mean, you know, the scenes from Beirut now are at once really heartbreaking, but also very, very enraging. I mean, this is a city um, that, like the rest of the country that was already transforming at a very fast rate um, in the past few months, um, you know, an, an, an economic collapse, really a freefall, a financial freefall, um, a counter, I mean, a revolution in October that was uh, uh, very quickly met with a counter revolution and a very heavy repression and, uh, you know, closing down of uh, spaces for uh, opposition. And then uh, the COVID uh, uh, pandemic that uh, you know, but the whole world is already dealing with as a, as a massive uh, crisis in Lebanon. That was just part of the crisis. Um, so we thought that you know we had seen it all um, until Tuesday when we realized that um, you know there's no end to this to this hell somehow. Um, so. Uh, you know, th this is a city where people were already tired. Everywhere. I mean, a lot of people had already lost their jobs. Many people were already unemployed. Um, uh, we had lost most of our, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, purchasing power. 
um, uh, hospital. I mean, we were starting to run up, run out of basics uh, uh, in terms of you know food supplies, uh, uh, medical supplies, etc. Garbage piling everywhere around us, um, uh, electricity cuts. So it was already uh, an incredibly bad uh, situation, and with this blast. Um, you know, things just became multiplied by, uh, you know, a, a million. Um, so what we've seen since uh, since the blast last week is, uh, uh, you know, a complete. I mean, why 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 do I say it's it's enraging because this is a crime against humanity. What happened is a crime that, uh, regardless of who has uh, ignited the, the that initial uh, fire. Um, you know, the whole ruling uh, mafia in Lebanon, I, I don't even want to call them um, uh, leaders or a political class because they aren't. Uh, they are all responsible. Every single person who's been in power um, for the past three decades, so since the end of the civil war, is somehow directly or indirectly implicated in, in what happened and is responsible. But beyond that, and this this alone has created the, the um, you know is enraging, and it has created the rage we're, we're seeing on on the streets today. Uh, but beyond that, the you know there there has been a complete uh, absence of the state in the first uh, uh, few days and even week now uh, after the blast. So we what we've seen is civil society and individual individual initiatives to remove the rubble uh, uh, and, and the glass from the streets, uh, clean the streets, help each other, uh, initiatives where people were trying to find accommodation for each other, etc. So it's it's really enraging to see that there really is no state when, when it's needed and there is a very strong state when it isn't needed, which is when, you know, when we protest. We only see them there. Um, the protest that took place after the blast, the, the bigger, the biggest one was on uh, Saturday, was met with incredibly, uh, uh, you know, high uh, crackdown, a heavy crackdown that is really, uh, you know, I mean, we, not only we've been uh, uh, bombed, but but we've we've also been on on Saturday. It was thousands of tear gas uh, canisters around, um, a, a heavy repression. Um, that is uh, that is also a continuation of this crime. Um, on Thursday, so um, in, in two days, uh, the parliament is meeting for a special session with only one item on their agenda. And you would think that after such a, a catastrophe, the, the, the item on the agenda would be that. Uh, but the only item is to announce a state of emergency, which would mean that the military would step up and that they would have more power it would give the security apparatus more power to enforce and deepen its crackdown on society. Um, and this makes us all feel that we are at a very, very dangerous um, turning point in our, our mm -hmm. history. I mean, after this blast, we know that, uh, you know, we know that it's a turning point and, and that things will never be the same again. But it's uh, it's very scary to to also see how this is also becoming an uh, an, an opportunity for the state to entrench the, the police state and an authoritarian regime. So before we before we talk a bit more about um, what's happening with the protests and the response of the state, um, I thought uh, one thing that has been left out of the reporting from Beirut, but I thought perhaps you could tell us a little bit about it, is the relationship of the capital to the rest of the country. Um, and how dependent um, the Lebanese hinterland is on Beirut, 
um, how the, you know how what's happened in Beirut will affect the rest of the country. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the main problems uh, uh, in terms of development in, in Lebanon is that it's uh, it's all centralized in Beirut. Uh, and uh, when we say, I mean, the port is really the lifeline of, of not just the city, but the country. This is uh, uh, the Beirut port is the port through which more than 70 percent uh, of the uh, um, imports uh, um, arrive. Uh, we are a country that has uh, almost no productive sector. So we uh, really rely on imports for, for our survival. And, uh, you know, with the port now being gone, uh, it's it means that, um, you know, just survival uh, has become an even bigger problem. It was already a problem because of the shortage of uh, dollars, but now it's, it's also... Uh, you know, we we, uh, we don't have the port anymore. Uh, but yeah, you're right to say that, you know, there there is an uneven uh, development in Lebanon. Uh, there is, uh, uh, you know, uh, the center, Beirut, is really the heart of the economic activity. And this is why it is, uh, you know, this it's it's a, it's a big hit to the whole, to the country in general, uh, um, what, what happened. Uh, I mean, I don't want to, uh, uh, you know, to sound like the... Uh, opportunistic uh, leaders but i hope that uh, you know after this um we th- that this would also be an opportunity for us in the future to think about a more balanced uh, development in the country we have a port in tripoli we have a port in uh and in, in sidon in the, in the south uh, they're not as big as as the one in, in beirut um but we need we need more development outside of the capital uh, to be able to uh, to deal with the magnitude of the, the the several crises we will have to deal with uh, for the decades to come, this is not going to be solved anytime soon. This is going to take a very very uh, long time because it's not only a matter of uh, recon- reconstruction. Uh, it's a city that has been uh, destroyed at the at the time of uh, you know its biggest financial uh, collapse. Hmm. So um, and and the social implications are huge uh, in terms of. Uh, jobs in terms of but also in terms of education in terms of you know uh, uh, um, uh, schooling housing uh, hospital healthcare, um, and class relations i mean this has transformed and will continue to transform the Lebanese society for years to come yeah no absolutely and i mean i think you noted somewhere that uh, you know it's a bit of an it's almost an irony that it was the port that was hit which is lebanon's main lifeline um but it, the home of Lebanon's ugliest death, you wrote. Um, and I think that's, yeah, quite, quite apposite. Um, I wanted to briefly discuss, uh, now a little bit about the protesters, uh, about the protests that have emerged since. And we'll go back to talking, uh, a little bit more about the protests in more depth later on. But just to give us, uh, to continue rounding out this initial picture, um, what are the protesters currently demanding? What is, is it, uh, is there a kind of a co- a coherence around a single demand? Is it for a co- the accountability for the explosion uh, to clean out the whole political class? Um, and are there any political organizations behind uh, different factions to the protest? Or is it um, kind of quite broad or inchoate? Or what, what is the character of the protest right now? Um, well, the demands are many and it is broad. And, uh, you know, there's always this question about... Uh, where, why don't why, I mean? Why isn't there a ready alternative in Lebanon? And um, you know, uh, what if we have a political uh, uh, vacuum? Who's going to step up? Um, the demands are many, and and the the protests are um, uh, they are protests, and they're not a protest. So they're, they're, they're 
many factions within mm-hmm. it, many different opinions, etc. There's a range of demands from accountability to revenge. And what we've been hearing this past week is is mainly revenge. Uh, right. People have no trust. And, and I mean, even in an in, in international uh, uh, investigation, I mean, this is a country that uh, that is has paid more than a billion dollars for an in, international investigation, the assassination of uh, Rafiq Hadid in 2005. Uh, the, ver- the verdict for that assassination was supposed to be uh, declared uh, 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 last week, and the explosion happened before. Now the verdict is, is going to be declared uh, they're saying next week on the 18th, uh, but we have no trust. It took it took uh, more than 15 years, and almost everyone knows what the verdict is going to be. So we don't trust the internal uh, uh, judiciary sh- channels. We don't trust the international, uh, uh, you know, community. And this is why I think what we've been hearing is revenge. People are just mm. want. I mean, yes, we want accountability, but we we cannot conceive of a, a way to do that. Um, and and it's clear that people are saying we don't want anyone from that ruling mafia anymore. Um, and unlike what uh, we, what we've been hearing in October, there were voices in, uh, during the October uprising. They were not the majority, but they were there that uh, were demanding solutions that are uh, technocratic. Or there were even people are asking for an army takeover. Today we're not hearing this. Uh, today there's been, uh, you know, the, the rage is much uh, bigger than what it was. Um, and I think at this point, protests are mainly ex- expressing this rage against the political class as a whole. Um, and um, you know, what has uh, the, I mean, everyone feels that we cannot reconcile with, with what what has happened. Um, what this means in terms of you know how do we move forward? How do can we unify? Who's uh, you know who's uh, is the street being co-opted? Yes, of course, and uh, it, and this is nothing new, and I think it's not peculiar to Lebanon. Uh, every every uprising or revolutionary mo- mo- movement comes with you know repression, co-optation, and we are already seeing uh, uh, people who who were part of this uh, you know uh, mafia that was ruling. Um, trying to co-opt, trying to position themselves uh, in the opposition, uh, and trying to reserve for themselves a seat uh, on the negotiation uh, table that uh, that is now clearly in the hands of the international community after the visit of uh, the French president a day after the explosion mm. and um, uh, and what is happening. But I also want to say something about, uh, you know, yes, it is unfortunate that the uh, the uprising doesn't have a clear... Uh, um, you know, and coherent and, and uh, you know, uh, alt- uh, like leadership that can propose an alternative. But I also want to say that, given the material conditions um, uh, uh, here, it's it's almost impossible for that to emerge at this point. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's very difficult, um, um, you know, to ask uh, for a, a movement that I mean, because October was was a social explosion. It's it's not a coup. It's not organized. It's not. So we've been trying to organize for the past ten months, uh, but we all know that you know, in Lebanon, as long as you you as long as it's performative, uh, you're welcome to mobilize. The minute it becomes a threat to the regime, uh, we know very well that this is. Uh, going to turn very, very violent and very bloody, and we've seen uh, uh, how this can happen. So I think uh, yes, it's very dangerous. We're not talking about uh, uh, you know peaceful protest. We're not. Uh, we're no longer in that uh, phase where this is even uh, possible anymore. I think that 
unfortunately, we are going into more violence and we are really at the brink of, um, you know, a, a war. Yeah, no, I mean, that's uh, understandable, uh, given given all that's happened. Um, and maybe as a way to try to understand uh, the development that you've just sketched out of of this huge social explosion uh, at the end of last year uh, and how that's led uh, us to today um, we should actually rewind and so what I wondered I wondered if you could give us a, a sort of a, a potted history of Lebanon since uh, the end of the civil war so maybe we should start there uh, the end of the civil war and the Taif agreement Okay, I'll try to do that. You know, it's uh, it's it's a huge task, but I'll, I'll try. <laughs> um, so the war ended uh, with uh, a ta- the Taif Agreement, which is an agreement that uh, uh, put an end to the war and um, s- started the the Second Republic of Lebanon based on a sectarian power sharing agreement. And this is an agreement uh, that this is what we call a, a corporate consociational democracy. Uh, so it's it's a type of democracy where uh, the different uh, identity groups, uh, sects in this in this uh, case, are uh, represented uh, uh, with with spe- a specific number of seats. So the parliament, the the cabinet, and all uh, first rank uh, uh, positions in, in in the state are divided along uh, a sectarian quota. Uh, so the president of the republic is is a Christian Maronite. Uh, the president, the uh, the prime minister is a, is a Muslim Sunni and the speaker of the house is a Muslim Shia. Uh, the executive powers are in the hands of the uh, prime minister. So uh, what has happened since the, since the Taif agreement, it, it clearly reshuffled uh, the, the powers of the different sectarian uh, leaders. It's important to say here that this is an agreement that uh, is is uh, presented as an agreement uh, that um, uh, represents the different components of society, whereas in reality it, it isn't the case. It, uh, it's an agreement. So unlike quota systems where, uh, where you create a quota system for minorities to be represented, this is a system that, cre- that uh, puts in place a quota to represent the majorities, not the minorities, uh, uh, to put it in a simple way. So... Uh, so after the, the civil war, we had an, an, uh, a sectarian power sharing agreement. We had an amnesty law that has, uh, uh, you know, issued an amnesty for all crimes committed during the 15 years uh, civil war. And uh, we ushered in a new age of neoliberalism with the project of reconstruction that uh, that came with the prime minister, Rafael Hariri, at that time, 1992. And that was uh, coupled with what we call a sectarian tutelage, I mean, uh, uh, more accurately, uh, 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 sorry, a Syrian tutelage, or more accurately, uh, a Syrian occupation. And the division uh, uh, back then was that the economy would be in the hands of uh, this new class of politicians uh, uh, headed by Hariri, and security would be in the hands of, uh, of the Syrian regime. Uh, with, uh, you know, Hezbollah being the only faction in Lebanon that was allowed to keep its arms uh, as a resistance movement. When so you said, for- when, when you said, Rima, about the, about, um, the post-Civil War economics under the Hariri government or Hariri's mm-hmm. leadership, could you tell us a bit about Lebanese neoliberalism? Uh, what did it look like? What were its major features? Um, how did Lebanon or Beirut change under under those economic policies? 
Yeah, so I mean, uh, uh, so after the civil war and with, with Hariri, the reconstruction uh, projects uh, began, and instead of that being a project that would, uh, you know, would be led by the state and would reinforce state institutions, it was mainly led by a private company, Solidaire. Uh, and it, I mean, there was a, a clear rolling back of the state, and uh, you know, a, a weakening of state institutions, and every single so uh, public public schools uh, were, became very very weak, and it was mainly uh, the private sector that took over. Same with hospitals. Same with every single I mean, uh, uh, you know, every single uh, uh, sector in the economy that you can think about. This is not completely new to Lebanon. So I'm not trying to say that before the war. Uh, uh, Lebanon was not already, a, you know, a liberal economy. Uh, we never really had a strong state. We never, I mean, it was only for a few years before the civil war under Fuad Shahab that we had, uh, you know, uh, a, a, a sort of a, a welfare state with, uh, like, social security uh, was was uh, established then. Uh, but after the civil war, this was uh, very badly hit. It, there was a, a clear decision uh, to, uh, you know, to to join the the neoliberal world, and it was ushered in with the reconstruction uh, project. Uh, this also meant that it it, it played uh, very well in uh, the interest of the sectarian leaders because with the weakening of state institutions, it was really the alternative non-state welfare institutions that uh, you know that filled that void so um, uh, and this is how clientelism flourished this is how patronage uh, uh, sectarian patronage uh, flourished so, so every sectarian leader was using the spoils of the state in many cases uh, but also the private sector was completely dominated by that class of uh, politicians slash businessmen mm. and bankers and and uh, you know uh, in many cases right um, so let me so the state became very very weak and it became that uh, this is why I call it a sectarian the sectarian mafia state uh, uh, that that took over um, so let me just yeah. jump in because it'd be nice to scan forward uh, through the nineties mm. up to two thousand five because two thousand five is an important pivotal moment in recent Lebanese history, as far as I understand it. There was the Hariri assassination, uh, which you already yes. mentioned, but a lot of things ensued from that, and you have a wider context of the Iraq War and the escalation of the of the kind of Shia Sunni conflict uh, across right. the region. Yeah, I mean, there's just one important event to mention before 2005 is 2000, because this is the year of uh, liberation of the mm. uh, south in Lebanon. So this is the year when uh, the occupied territories of Lebanon were uh, liberated, occupied by Israel. Uh, and this is when the, uh, the, you know, the question of Hezbollah and the arms of Hezbollah emerged as a problematic uh, uh, issue, right? So we don't, so our land is no longer directly uh, occupied. There's, a, there's still a very uh, uh, a small uh, region, the, the Shaba farms, uh, but uh, we're not sure whether this is a Lebanese region or a Syrian region. But anyways, this is when, uh, you know, the uh, um, conflicting opinions about the Hezbollah started to emerge. Uh, until 2005, as I said, Lebanon was under the tutelage of the Syrian regime. 2005, uh, the assassination of uh, Rafi al-Hariri, most probably by the Syrian regime, uh, created, uh, you know, an important turning point, uh, created a massive uh, mobilization uh, th uh, that uh, shifted the, the, the balance of power in, in the country and uh, that forced the Syrian army to withdraw from Lebanon. 
but uh, created an internal um, uh, uh, you know polarization between what has be, uh, what came to be known as the March 8th and the March 14th camp the March 8th camp led by Hezbollah and being pro uh, uh, Syrian regime uh, the March 14th camp uh, being and uh, accusing the Syrians of uh, uh, being behind the assassination and being closer to the west uh, uh, to the west and the western camp uh, that created, uh, again, uh, as, I, as I'm saying, a polarization that kept on uh, increasing and that became more and more uh, violent with, uh, you know, a, a series of assassinations between 2005 and 2007. Uh, July 2006, Israeli war on Lebanon that destroyed uh, a, a big chunk of the infrastructure of the country. 2007, 2008, internal conflicts um, uh, you know, uh, in 2007, there was a, a conflict with, in the Nahr al-Bared uh, Palestinian camp, uh, clashes between uh, Palestinian uh, factions and, and the army. Uh, 2008, an internal uh, um, uh, mini-civil war that was framed as a Sunni-Shia uh, uh, war. Mm. Uh, again, as, as you say, this comes, in, uh, uh, you know, at the, uh, uh, against the backdrop of the Iraq war and the... the, the sectarianization of the Sunni-Shia conflict in the region. Yeah. Um, and, th and there's a sort of shifting shifting patterns of sectarian polarizations and alliances that are happening here, right? Because, I mean, as you already mentioned, the March 8th and the March 14th groupings shifted things around and, and made alliances maybe slightly different to what Lebanon had been previously used to, where conflict had often been Christian versus Muslim, to put it in the most basic yeah, terms. Yes, so well, this is... Yeah, go this on, is exactly go on. why. I mean, this whole this whole sectarian framing has to be uh, used very carefully. Uh, and this is not to say that there isn't, uh, uh, you know, that sectarianism does not exist. It does, of course. But what it means to say that it's Muslim Christian or Sunni Shia uh, is very complex. It's uh, it's not a straightforward. I mean, these uh, these boundaries are not straightforward and are, are not clear. And they keep moving and they keep shifting. And if one zooms in, you will find that there are Sunnis on the sides of the on the side of the Shia and vice versa. And then there's the Christians who are in the. I mean, when I say the Christians, of course, I mean the Christian uh, political parties. So, uh, um, so the players are many, and the way th this is being framed uh, uh, it has to be, uh, you know, has has to be looked at carefully. But of course, there was an attempt to sectarianize. So this this is clearly, uh, 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 you know. A conflict over power and interest. Uh, uh, it's an intersection of geopolitics, uh, uh, but also of internal uh, structural shifts within the Lebanese society and within the Lebanese political uh, uh, class um, that translated in those terms. And that was, and sectarianization was one of one of the uh, you know one of the uh, processes or one of the tools used. Uh, to turn this around and to mobilize on on both uh, sides of of the divide, uh, but this all again it's, it took yeah. I just what I was going to say it's a wonderful historic sweep from the end of the civil war. I wondered if you could just bring us up to um, the Syrian war. Um, yes, I was about to say. Oh, wonderful! And just yeah, maybe to tell us a bit about the 2015 again. protests as well. Yes. So this all shifted again in 2000, after the start of the Arab uprisings in 2011 and 2012 with the huge, uh, you know, uh, uh, when, the, when the war started and when the revolution turned into a war in, in Syria and, uh, um, you know, there was a huge influx of refugees from Syria. So Lebanon has the highest rate of uh, refugees per capita in the world. Um, 
but that also translated internally in terms of uh, new tension and new clashes uh, uh, in different regions from Tripoli to uh, to Sidon. I won't go into the details of that, but it it again, you know, create and inflamed those already uh, existing fault lines and entrenched them uh, further. It, it took a, a you know a, a violent turn, and. And, you know, in the midst of that, as in Iraq, uh, you know, in Iraq, it, it, it's a very similar, uh, um, you know, uh, timeline, if you want. There, so there is those sectarian geopolitical tensions. But in the middle of that, uh, in 2015, and actually in both countries, uh, uh, there, there was an eruption of a mass protest that was uh, that had nothing to do with the geopolitical scene. And that was really about basic services. In Lebanon, it was yeah. about the garbage crisis, right? We yeah. literally were drowning uh, under a pi uh, piles of garbage. Uh, so again, this was another turning point that uh, uh, created a shift within the civil society. And this was the first time uh, the civil society became a bit more or, or decided to go for a more politicized role, uh, although the slogans were uh, were very apolitical at that at that time. But uh, some uh, parts of the uh, uh, movement organized and uh, and and run for municipal and and parliamentary elections, uh, and things had started to and the term uh, an opposition and an opposition started to be formed uh, since then. Um, so what happened in, in October 2019 with the, uh, you know, with the revolutionary explosion, the, the uprising that we've seen, is really a continuation of an, an accumulation of all of these uh, struggles over the years. Uh, and also, you know, it's an intersection of all these different layers of the conflict, be it the, the socioeconomic internally, uh, but also the geopolitical, the, the regional um, uh, uh, that you know created this uh, this kind of mobilization that is, and I call it a social explosion because it's not it's not a it's not a revolution that you know took the shape of a coup. Uh, it's really an explosion, yeah. as we've seen with other other uh, uh, revolutions in the Arab world. Uh, yeah. And and one of uh, one of its main uh, challenges today is how to organize and how to move forward and whether it will be able to do that or not. Right. Yeah. Um, before we discuss actually those that social explosion in a little bit more depth, maybe we should uh, turn to the economic factors, um, because that was an important backdrop already to the 2019 protests. Um, so how did we get to where we are with Lebanon? Uh, obviously, the country has, has uh, been a longstanding financial center for the region. Um, why did that then start to unravel? Yeah, so as I was saying before, I mean, part of this whole uh, neoliberalization uh, process was, um, uh, you know, relying heavily on the banking sector and the real estate sector, um, so on financial capitalism, with, uh, um, you know, no real productive sectors to rely on. So there's no real economy if you if you want. Um, and that has been a bubble that was, uh, you know, uh, uh, growing and growing until it burst in, in, in 2019. But the signs of that uh, burst had started before in 2016 mm -hmm. when uh, the financial engineering started by the central bank. So just uh, context for uh, for those who are not very familiar with, uh, with the, the economy of Lebanon. Yeah. After the civil war, uh, most of the reconstruction uh, was based on loans that were uh, mainly internal loans that the state had taken from uh, from local banks. 
So uh, the uh, the biggest chunk of, of our uh, uh, debt is an is an internal debt to the Lebanese uh, banks. Um, so and it has been so the banking sector um, uh, was praised for many many years. I mean the the governor of the central bank uh, has has been in, in place for thirty years, uh, like many other politicians in Lebanon, and he's received many awards for the great uh, job he's done. They pegged the dollars. Uh, they pegged the Lebanese lira to the dollar at uh, 1,500 uh, uh, Lebanese uh, pounds, um, and and this was this was always presented as a success story. Uh, although uh, I mean, what was behind that was uh, a bubble that was inevitably going to burst. And um, so what happened in the past few years is that uh, the the dollar's reserve started to dry up for many reasons. Uh, uh, Lebanon's economy uh, uh, or finance relies a lot on remittances from um, Lebanese who live abroad um, and more than 13% of our GDP uh, comes from uh, remittances and this mm. had started to uh, to dwindle um, in the past years uh, you know the regional conflict the the um, you know the drop in the oil price uh, etc all of these are factors that have affected the the dollars reserve in, in Lebanon and uh, instead of uh, you know trying to find real structural solutions for what was happening, the central bank decided to attract uh, um, capital by offering uh, uh, unbelievably high interest rates. So banks in Lebanon were giving an, an interest rate that could arrive to 18% and 20% for just depositing your money there. So, and this, again, this does not encourage anyone to do any investment. If you can put your money in the bank and sit and take the, the interest rate, yeah. why would you invest, right? Um, so they've attracted, so they were attracting uh, uh, capital uh, through uh, those crazy in, in interest rates, but that was, again, not sustainable. Uh, so uh, so, the, so it, it, uh, the bubble, uh, uh, you know, was bound to burst and it did in 2019. And uh, it took the it took the central bank more than I think six or seven months to even recognize that there is a crisis. So they keep saying there isn't a crisis. Um, but anyway, so uh, so this is this is partly uh, you know why we uh, we got to where we are today. Uh, and the problem is that because we don't have any productive sectors uh, that we could we can rely on, whether agriculture or industry. Um, uh, we L Lebanon depends heavily on, uh, um, you know, on uh, goods that we import from from abroad, and um, and that requires dollars, uh, and you know the reserve of dollars has uh, has uh, dried up, and this is why you know the, the, there has already been shortage of uh, fuel, so shortage of I mean the electricity had always been a problem, but it became more severe, uh, but also shortage of uh, wheat. So bread, uh, basic medical needs, etc. And this is why, and what we've been living in the past few months, uh, what is very clearly uh, seen in our everyday life, even for people who don't really understand how the economy works. Uh, there are goods that we can no longer find. There are uh, medications that, that are no longer available simply because we cannot import them anymore uh, because we don't have the dollars. Uh, our, the money uh, of depositors in the banks have been illegally uh, um, uh, you know, uh, if you want, stolen by the bank. So people don't have access to their uh, to their own uh, uh, deposits in the banks anymore uh, uh, in dollars. 
Um, so there's an illegal capital control. And instead of, uh, I mean, I, I'm all for a capital control uh, and a haircut in, in, a, in a situation like this. But, uh, but instead of that capital control and haircut to be imposed on the rich and yeah. those who've accumulated that wealth uh, over the years, uh, uh, people, uh, the the 1% that is, uh, that, that has the biggest, uh, you know, uh, capital in the country was allowed to smuggle their money out of the country. We know that $6 billion have left the country between October and November, uh, 2019, while, uh, the majority of the, uh, uh, you know, of the depositors, so everyone else had no access to their money anymore. So whatever dollars were left right. in the banking sector were smuggled out of the country. Right. So it was uh, so the, means... the the capital controls imposed and and other banking restrictions. I mean that uh, really bit into even just kind of small deposits by held by the middle class. I suppose. Yeah, so we're talking about, uh, I mean, this is the retirement uh, 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 money of people who had just retired. This is all gone now. Uh, uh, and this is why I'm saying that the social implications are huge. Whatever little savings you had, I mean, whether it's, you know, a thousand or two thousand dollars or whether it's someone who's just retired and has uh, cashed fifty thousand dollars, for example, and this is what this is all they have. Uh, left this is gone now this money mm. does not exist anymore and we have no access to it uh, so this is a real social uh, catastrophe in a country where the state does not provide anything so i just i mean so there's no healthcare that is provided for free and there's so it really put the the, the society um, you know in, in a situation where there's absolutely no no uh, social safety nets. So, I mean, obviously this leads to the eruption in, in October and this downward pressure on living standards is felt across the board, the poor, the working class and the middle class. Um, where does the where does the spark come from? What causes people so, to come out onto the streets again? So the spark is, as I'm saying, it's a, a financial crisis that had already started months earlier, but that became really felt in our everyday life uh, in October. I mean, the spark was the week when the revolution had started, was a week when we had um, uh, huge fires in the several regions in Lebanon. And uh, we've all seen a, a complete incapacity of the state to, uh, you know, to deal with the fires. So yes, and then there was the the WhatsApp tax uh, that that was if you want the spark. Of course, it's not a WhatsApp revolution, but that was the spark uh, uh, that uh, ignited this this uprising. Um, but uh, you know, since then, it it only kept on getting worse every day. Uh, and uh, you know, the the banks, the the immediate res uh, response of the banks was that they closed for the first time in the history of the banking sector in Lebanon. Back, even during the civil war, they have never closed uh, that for that long, and all the uh, you know the uh, the, the the illegal uh, uh, control they've imposed on on people. So there was that, but I think what really made this uh, mass mobilization in two thousand and October uh, twenty nineteen a revolution is that this was the first time we saw uh, the mobilization of certain uh, social classes. Um, and certain social uh, groups that are usually the constituencies of the traditional sectarian uh, uh, political parties in, in ah. the country. And this was a clear message uh, that something was changing from below. Um, Interesting. They managed, unfortunately, uh, these parties managed 
uh, it took them some time, but by December they managed to co-opt that uh, uh, again. And you know they've deployed all all types of uh, rhetorics about uh, this being uh, you know funded by by uh, embassies, etc. That this is uh, you know an American plot or, or whatever. I mean all the usual conspiracy theory. Yeah. But it was clear at the beginning and why it, why it was dealt with from the political. Uh, uh, leaders as a revolution from, from day one is that those who initially mobilized are their own constituencies. And this is very different from 2015 when uh, those who mobilized was mainly, you know, uh, I dare say us, you know, the middle class activists. Uh, and and this is why it, it was dangerous and threatening um, because you know, they know that this, this was a clear sign that their own people were turning against them. Um, and, and of course, when I say their own people, I don't mean uh, that these are blind followers or whatever uh, uh, description is usually used in the media. I and mean, there are clear reasons for why people would follow. Uh, I, I, again, we're talking about the, a complete mm. absence of, of the state, right? So, so just, to, just to clarify that, this way. just to clarify something, the mm. um, you're saying that the kind of the heart, the, the kind of uh, nucleus of the base of sectarian politics is the middle class. Is that right? No, it's uh, uh, it's, uh, it's several classes. It's actually I'm saying those who mobilized are not the middle are not initially the middle class. This, ah, right, this is yeah, the working yeah. class. Uh, the middle class is more the activist civil society scene. Um, so I just I, I just meant in the sense that because it came as a shock um, that or rather that it's, it, it's, that the protest signified something was changing because it was breaking the the sectarian mold. Yeah, it was breaking the sectarian mold because this was somehow an alliance between the middle class and and the working classes, or the middle classes and the working classes. So we we don't usually see them mobilizing together. Right? Mm-hmm. There's a civil society that is neat and that has its own slogans uh, that are uh, you know more focused on reform, accountability, etc. And you had these outbursts of mobilization of anger from uh, the working classes in different neighborhoods. Uh, but that the scale of what happened in October was was that they uh, it started with the working classes. Uh, and anyways, the tactics they used were clearly different than 2015. It was not peaceful mobilization. It started with uh, uh, you know burning of tires and blocking ma- the main. Uh, highways and roads in, in the country and it was across the country it started in beirut but spread very quickly across the country mm. um so it's not like the the peaceful scene of activists with banners it was uh, you know it was it was burning uh, they actually even burned uh, you know garbage bins so um so it was a different scene and it was a different message but they they were very quickly joined by the middle classes uh, which created the uh, you know the mass mobilization we saw the next day in the squares, um, and then you know and then you have the, the politics of the squares and, and what happened then and how the class dynamics in the squares have shifted uh, in the first few days, and unfortunately those who had initially mobilized and those who had really created this revolutionary moment um, retrieved later. Um, and many of them uh, return to their initial, uh, you know, uh, basis. Right. Yeah.
So I think it'd be good now to turn to sectarianism specifically. And I mean, later on, we'll talk about the protests mm-hmm. now and what the future looks like. But um, to try to understand uh, what I guess is a, is a feature of Lebanon that most people outside of it will know. I mean, they'll know that there's different groups uh, based on, I suppose, you know, religious or whatever identities. Um but I guess maybe what's what's less known is something that you've written about, which is that everyone complains about sectarianism. Um, it's used as a reason for why Lebanon, you know, quote unquote, doesn't work. Um, and that this is something that is complained about both amongst the ruling class um, and amongst the, the masses. So how does it, the, how does this dynamic work where sectarianism persists and reproduces itself? Um, yeah, so I mean, everyone said, if you ask anyone in Lebanon, they would tell you sectarianism is bad. But if you ask the politicians, uh, and maybe some of their, uh, of their followers, they will tell you it's bad, but it's necessary, because it's a matter of survival. And, you know, there's this whole discourse about my representation. Um, and, and, you know, this is where the work of someone like Nancy Fraser becomes important. Uh-huh, yeah. uh, and they, they deploy so much the rhetoric of representation, there's very little about uh, redistribution, right? Uh, because I think at the core of it, it is a, it is a politics of redistribution. It is about distributing the spoils of the state through sectarian uh, leaders, uh, and and therefore uh, there's this aspect that is uh, very much overlooked in the analyses on on sectarianism. Of course, there is ideology, there's you know identity interpolation, all of that. Uh, but there's also a political economy for how this works, and it's it's a structure, it's a system that is, uh, uh, that you know, it's a bit like patriarchy. We we, we complain about the, about it, but it's there, right? And, and sectarianism is is somehow the same. And this is why my recent work now is trying to uh, theorize for w- what I call uh, uh, sectarian capitalism. Um, you know, thinking along other uh, uh, people who've written about uh, racial capitalism, it's. If you want, it's 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 along these same lines of this is identity politics that only feeds into uh, capital accumulation and uh, you know uh, uh, the mm-hmm. engine of of capitalism. No, th- that's um, really interesting because it's not just um, identity politics, as I guess many people in the West will know it as a kind of discursive phenomenon about kind of subcultural groups um, no, interpreting yeah. their understanding, but it's really re- about power and the state and about distribution, about distributing parts of the state and allocating parts of the state to according to along group lines. Exactly. I mean, this and this is why I was saying it's a kind of. Uh, identity politics or when I mentioned the quotas that is in favor of the 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 stronger not the weaker the majority not yeah. the minority right yeah. so it's a reverse type of uh, you know thinking about identity politics or uh, or um, uh, you know quota systems etc um, so yeah it, it is a system that is uh, very in Lebanon it's actually uh, you know a system that has existed uh, it's the system on which Lebanon was created to begin with. It's uh, you know this is a system that colonial powers have put in place a hundred years ago. To, I mean this uh, this uh, on on September first, uh, uh, Lebanon will turn a hundred years old, and this is a system that is as old as Lebanon. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I, so I say it's a system, but it's a system that has also created its culture, right? Uh, and yeah. that has also shaped uh, social dynamics and social relationships and uh, the shape of the state and uh, political relations and, and it's not um, a, and it's and not a primordial relationship right i mean you say it's 100 years old but it's not as if you know these are some no, no, <laughs> you know ancient no. identities that the people yeah it's it's something that is politicized and reproduced ident- 
yeah thank you for this question it's good to clarify these identities are not are not old actually it's a system that is old and it's a system i'm saying old meaning it was created in the 19th century uh, under uh, the ottoman empire and then uh, further entrenched with uh, the, the french and british colonial rule in the region uh, th it has nothing to do with identities or religion or old religious religious feuds uh, um, because if th if this was the case, it doesn't. We cannot really explain why it wasn't there before the 19th century, right? So no, it is a modern phenomena. It actually, uh, many historians have uh, very clearly and beautifully explained how this is the system that came about with modernity. It is the outcome of modernity, and actually with the penetration of capitalism to the Middle East. So. Uh, uh, and, and this is, again, why I'm saying it's, uh, we need to start thinking about sectarian capitalism uh, uh, specifically as, you know, a, 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 a type of capitalism in this part of the world um, where identities were used um, and, and the benefit of uh, capital. So, um, yeah, definitely uh, no, no primordialism there. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it has shifted many times. And just very quickly in Lebanon, uh, if we just look at the hundred years, the past hundred years in Lebanon, the main conflict started as a conflict between the Druze and the Maronites. It then shifted to a conflict between the, the Maronites and the Sunnis. And then it became a conflict between the Christians and the Muslims. And then after 2005, it shifted to Sunni Shia. So, if there, so there's, ne there's nothing fixed or old or yeah. primordial about this this and, is and, very much about political fault line yeah and, and i mean you've, you've written spoken about you know sectarianism from above as well as sectarianism from below so it might be interesting mm. to give a picture of what the daily experience of of this sectarian division in politics is actually like um because obviously it, it people fit into these groups or cast into these groups uh, and they pursue their interests through them. So what, I mean, I, I think there's several ju separate judicial systems in, in Lebanon. So you have to appeal through, uh, you yeah. know, yeah. Maybe you could explain how that system works rather than me uh, trying to explain it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so there is, so uh, you're right to say that in Lebanon, the, there isn't a, uh, for personal status law. So ev anything, everything related to family law, marriage, divorce, inheritance, custody, etc., cetera, uh, property, this is all dealt with in, uh, through religious courts. Uh, there are 15 religious courts in Lebanon. So we don't have a civil code. So, and this is why I, I uh, you know, I don't think that we can speak of citizens in Lebanon. We don't have one law for all citizens. Right. So, uh, and th so there's no civil marriage in Lebanon. If you want to marry someone from another uh, religion or another sect, you'll have to travel to Cyprus. Uh, most of the uh, oh, right. yeah. cases. So, uh, so, and this is how it shapes society, right? Even family relationships are shaped by that. Uh, um, uh, and, uh, you know, property is shaped by by uh, by these different courts and these different laws. Uh, but I say sectarianism from below because there's also uh, you know an oversimplification when we say that yes, it's leaders who who are benefiting from sectarianism, of course. Uh, but there's a question that uh, that you know remain to be answered is why do people follow? It's not just that leader. It's not that people are just blind followers, and the leader tells them, you know, okay, so today you have to hate the Sunnis, and they wake up and all, <laughs> they all hate the Sunnis. Yeah. This is not how it happens, right? There are, and and this is why these are very complex processes at the social level that have also created mechanisms of sectarianism from below, where people start to see their, uh, um, you know, existence through the through these, uh, uh, you know, different. Uh, uh, 
parastate institutions and channels. Uh, but uh, we're also, because of clientelism, because, uh, you know, it's very difficult to get a job in Lebanon if you don't have a push from, uh, from a, a certain leader somewhere. Uh, um, it's very difficult to get into, uh, 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 you know, to get free uh, schooling or, or um, medical uh, or healthcare if you don't have that uh, backing. Uh, so in our everyday life, people depend very much on those leaders who, who fill the void of the state by providing those services in return of loyalty, right? And people mm -hmm. are, in the, people... Uh, when you don't see a state, you are afraid to let go of of, the, of that the, whatever benefit you think. And in many cases, it's really as as uh, as Berlin would call it, it's, it's cruel optimism. In many cases, people are not getting anything, but it's just the belief that in case they need it, there would be someone who would have their backs, uh, and so that someone would be their sectarian leader. Right. So that ties that ties sectarian uh, elites together with uh, with the masses, with their bases, um, into this. So, in, yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's that, but there's also another very important aspect uh, of clientelism that is not uh, about material interest and, and uh, you know, uh, that is not about jobs and, and access to uh, services, but that is about uh, safety and security. And I think this is one of the strongest pillars of this system uh, that, again, because the state does not protect uh, its citizens and uh, as I said, we're not citizens. Uh, safety becomes very much a matter of, uh, you know, uh, uh, these tactics. And uh, part of what happened, uh, and what part of what has been happening for years now, uh, for decades, is that um, these parties are very strong at the neighborhood levels, and that's why I say they're mafias. Mm. And uh, you know, if you dare. Uh, uh, be vocal against them. You are really threatened in your, uh, you know, in, uh, in your own home. And we know stories, and, and you know, uh, uh, our family members, our friends, uh, all of us, of people who've been threatened by uh, uh, those around them because they they participated in protests. People who've been beaten up. People who've been, uh, and and those parties are also in control of the judicial system. So there are people who've been thrown in jail with allegations such as, you know. They they uh, they are a drug dealer or whatever, so they can they can fabricate those uh, allegations and they can literally throw you in jail for years. Um, so uh, so I'm saying that just to say this is a very strong system. Lebanon is is never thought of as an authoritarian system, but when we zoom in and we look at the how the state is functioning, it is actually an an, an authoritarian system uh, that has a facade that looks like liberty and democracy and people can protest and people can write and people but uh, the, uh, this doesn't come without a consequence uh, depending on who you are and and how much uh, you threaten uh, uh, this regime and yeah um, as we as we as people are becoming more and more vocal uh, threat is bigger and this is why i think we are going into more a more violent episode so, I mean, in, in general, and maybe looking at the, the scenario before the most recent events, was there any agency or group pushing hard against sectarianism? Um, not just obviously in the name of, uh, you know, in a kind of masking of their own interests, saying that they're against sectarianism, but really just wanting to advance mm. their own group interests. But is there any kind of group in society agency which was really genuinely against this, the consultational system? Yes. Yeah. 
Yes, there are many groups. And actually in 2011, when the Arab uprisings uh, started in the region, in Lebanon, there was a movement that, uh, uh, you know, uh, used the same slogan, uh, but tweaked it to the Lebanese uh, case. And it was the people want the downfall of the sectarian regime, so not just the regime. And there were many right, yeah. movements, uh, and, you know, there's the civil society uh, movement for years has, has been anti-sectarian, uh, you know, in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the, the, the left was very strong in Lebanon, and um, all leftist parties were against sectarianism. Uh, one one thing that at that point was, uh, I think, a slippery uh, slope was that sectarianism, we always think of anti-sectarianism in terms of nationalism, right? Yeah. And we have we have still seen this in, in the recent protests. When people uh, uh, hold the Lebanese flag and, and they talk about unity and coexistence, what they mean is that we are not sectarian. But uh, the very idea of you know sectarianism is the other side of the coin of nationalism. Yeah, right. It's it's a different it's a different uh, form of ruling class unity, I guess. Exactly. Uh, so and and I think this is a trap that uh, we have repeatedly fell in. Uh, you know, in the in the history of Lebanon, that the only way we can imagine an anti-sectarian movement is by adopting an, a nationalist uh, rhetoric that is either. A Lebanese nationalism or an Arab nationalism. In both cases, it's it's not a very different, uh, uh, you know, in, in the broader scheme of things, it's not a very different system than a sectarian system. So on this point of um, this kind of dialectic between universalism and particularism in mm -hmm. Lebanese politics. I suppose um, I wanted to take you back a bit to, you mentioned earlier how Lebanon has followed in the groove of the regional protest politics that have um, swept through uh, countries like Iraq, um, Egypt and mm -hmm. uh, Syria since the Arab Spring, um, mm -hmm. and that they've all failed. Um, and that Lebanon has seen that kind of um, the failure of this popular protest politics as well. Um, and I wonder, I suppose, if you could tell us um, whether or not there's a feeling of any um, lessons learned by uh, the left in the region. Is there any kind of experience that has settled or insight that has come from the failure of popular protest politics and the collapse into civil war and sectarianism that we've seen um, since the you know since the failure of all the revolutions launched by the Arab Spring. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a bit wary of uh, describing uh, what is happening or what has happened as a failure. I think yes, it clearly there is a, a, a counter revolution that in many cases has turned these uprisings into. Uh, horrible civil wars or, uh, you know, transitional uh, or a, a political transition that led to dictatorship as in, as in Egypt. And uh, But I think revolutions are, uh, uh, we need to look at them in the long durée. And I think this is a process that had started in 2011, but uh, that will keep on unfolding uh, for decades to come. Um, I also think that there are two countries in the, in the region that managed to have not an ideal transition, uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily qualify them as a, a, a failure. And that is uh, Tunisia. And I mean, the, the first wave of Arab uprisings, Tunisia, uh, was uh, was the best case scenario. Uh, the yep. second wave of Arab uprisings, we have uh, Sudan. In yep. both countries, uh, what was different from the rest of the uh, countries that have witnessed uprisings is the presence of 
um, unions. And, yeah. and in mm. Tunisia, it was the UGTT that played an important role. And uh, these are, you know, uh, because unions play an important role with, uh, uh, you know, they have a social presence beyond just the political presence, but they, because these are conflicts that are, uh, I mean, these are revolutions that exploded on, uh, because of inequality, because of, of you know, this is the, re the, the region in the world that has the highest rate of youth unemployment. So unions can play a very important role. And, and in Sudan, it was the professionals, the Sudanese Professionals Association. And I think this is a lesson uh, learned. And there were attempts and uh, still are attempts in Lebanon at organizing uh, along those lines, I was part of. Um, I'm part of uh, that kind of organizing. It's very difficult. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if I can already say we failed, uh, but there are many internal divisions. There are many, uh, you know, uh, uh, challenges in doing that. But I think this is a very, very essential uh, lesson for the left, and uh, uh, you know, for uh, for anyone, even if if they're not uh, necessarily leftist. But I think. Anyone who really wants a, a transition needs to look at, at this, not just as a political uh, problem, but also as a deeply economic one. And uh, we're talking about societies. Yeah. I mean, it's only, it's, if we had union, I mean, in the past few months in Lebanon with the economic crisis, we have mass, massive layoffs. Where are the unions? Who protects the workers? Who protects the yeah. employees? Who protects? So, and, and there was, in the history of Lebanon is a very clear, I mean, when you asked me about uh, uh, what, what it means when we say the neoliberalization neoliber after the civil war, I, I should have mentioned that before. And uh, with the Hariri governments and what came after that, one of the first thing they did was the, to dismantle the, um, uh, the labor uh, union and the labor mm. movement in Lebanon. And they did it in a very violent way. Um, that they completely uh, dismantled it and uh, co-opted it. Uh, the, I, I think the uh, you know the, the General Federa Federation of Workers in Lebanon is probably one of the very few in the world that has uh, voted against uh, 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 you know uh, uh, raising the minimum wage. So imagine what kind of uh, uh, unions we're talking about. Completely co-opted by by the regime. Right. Um, yeah, so I think this is an important lesson. I think that moving forward, this is definitely something that we need to, uh, you know, to keep in mind and, and to uh, to organize along those lines. But at the same time, I think at, in Lebanon now, we've been saying this for the past uh, 10 months and we've been trying to organize along those lines. And as a, as a university professor, I've been organizing uh, with other university professors and creating, trying to create a union for, uh, because we don't have a union, for university professors in Lebanon. But I think where we are now uh, with after this explosion uh, requires a different type of, uh, uh, you know, of course, organizing labor, uh, a labor movement is a, is a longer term uh, goal, but we are really at the brink of a, an even bigger collapse today. And, um, you know, I, I I just wish we had uh, left that that was organized enough to to step up, but uh, unfortunately we don't. Yeah, um, no doubt, uh, and I mean it, it does seem like a what was kind of proto revolutionary situation uh, right there. But maybe um, 
yeah, the, the kind of organization isn't there to take that forward. And I want to discuss that in just a second. Um, but before that, uh, as a means of rounding this out and discuss and bring us back to the current day, um, and to discuss the, the crisis, um, what, it, what is the situation now in Lebanon with regard to the questions of foreign assistance and or intervention? Um, I imagine there's been some sort of middle class constituencies which have been hoping that the kind of international community comes and saves Lebanon and whatever. Um, and no doubt you're skeptical of, of things like that. But how do you see that game playing out? You know, you mentioned right early on that Macron arrived there the day after the explosion. Um, you know, wouldn't it be lovely and, if we all had, also, if we all had the confidence of an Emmanuel Macron to walk through the streets of a foreign country saying, I'm here to save you? Yeah, I mean, the, um, the very same Emmanuel Macron actually uh, is the one who gives the Lebanese state, uh, Thousand, the, the thousands of tear gas canisters that w- they were throwing on us on Saturday. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. the French state yeah. that that uh, donates that to the Lebanese state. When they're not uh, using it on French citizens themselves. Um, exactly. I mean, uh, the same Emmanuel Macron that has uh, horribly dealt with the, with the yellow vest mobilization. So I don't know what kind of hope we can have and, and uh, we can have there. But I, so, but I how? Just but to- just to, if you could tell us, Rima, how real is that constituency for? Um, because it was widely reported, widely shared on social media, um, the apparent popularity of Macron, the hope that the French could, um, you know, uh, force kind of some kind of uh, new pact or agreement among very, uh, Lebanon's various political groupings. Uh, there was a, a petition that was widely shared on the internet as well, which had tens of thousands of signatures yeah. of uh, people who wanted to see the rest- restoration of the French mandate. Um, mm. How re- I mean, how real is it's that? It's really you know? the irony of history, you know, what, where we are today in terms of, uh, you know, the, the political makeup of this country and, and also its economic makeup is really the result, partly, of course, not completely, but uh, a, partly a result of uh, French uh, colonialism. Uh, so thinking today that this is going to solve it, and it's, um, I mean, I, I understand and I don't, I, I mean, I don't mean to undermine the reality of uh, people's feeling. People are, are, I mean, it's despair, right? People feel the emotions at the, at the first few, I mean, even today after the explosion, we, they, we were literally blown up. Uh, so I understand uh, that people want any kind of savior and that, uh, you know, what I'm going to say is probably not, not very popular uh, outside activist circles. Uh, and, and, and I totally understand that. People want to believe that someone is going to save us. Um, but it's also important to say that it's very unlikely that we are going to be saved by, uh, by the international community. And, and I say this not to say that we shouldn't have uh, recourse at all to the uh, international community. It depends on whom in the international community and who here is, is negotiating and how this is happening. Unfortunately, we are not in a situation where, uh, you know, and, and internally we are able to uh, shift. Uh, but we have there is a party in the country, Hezbollah, that has an army with, um, you know, with weapons. Uh, so we are not in a, in a situation where we can talk about a liberation front that is able to uh, uh, to do that alone. Um, uh, yes, if we can pressure the international community, maybe we should do it. Um, but that definitely is not in the form of Macron coming to Lebanon and and uh, giving us uh, giving uh, you know uh, the the meeting with all the very pol- the next day after the explosion he sat with the very same criminals who blew us up a day before he sat with all of them 
um, uh, and he called for a national unity government, which for Lebanese is a very clear term that means more of the same. Uh, this is not about a change in the system in Lebanon. This is actually about reproducing and entrenching even, even more this consociational system. Mm. Uh, uh, and this is why I, I think, I mean, and talks about early elections and talks about, I mean, to me, it really sounds uh, like I mean, someone has really to be hallucinating to believe in all of that. We cannot have, we, we cannot talk about Lebanon as a democracy with institutions that function. It's not a coincidence that every election, it's the same uh, leaders who get uh, uh, voted in again. It, there is a structural reason for why this happens. In the absence of a state, people are going to vote every time, although they know and they curse them every day, but they know that they have no alternative uh, 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 in terms of just basic survival than, than uh, those leaders. But also, they, we cannot talk about a transition what a term that that you know the West is using a lot. There's no transition in Lebanon before banning and banning those uh, every leader that has been or every person that has been in power uh, after the civil war in Lebanon needs to be banned from uh, uh, public life in Lebanon. Uh, and and all these parties that have participated in the civil war and in the uh, uh, different uh, governments that followed have to be dissolved. The amnesty so, law is the main reason, uh, you know, we, we cannot, I mean, it's the same war, warlords, war criminals that are, they just changed their, they, they, they uh, uh, dressed in suits and became yeah. the politicians. These are our, uh, the president and the, and the speaker of that. These are all war criminals. Uh, so so you've this is the so, time for justice. So you've indicated your skepticism of Macron and um, the point about how uh, so-called national unity governments will just entrench the very problems that Lebanon has to escape. Um, and in a piece you wrote for CNN, you said, quote, um, the international community needs to immediately freeze all the accounts and properties mm -hmm. of the Lebanese oligarchs, end quote. Mm -hmm. um, but I was wondering, doesn't that risk kind of inviting uh, a softer version of that um, Macronite or uh, a kind of a, giving an yeah. op opportunity for internet for some kind of nation building in Lebanon um, which I th wouldn't that be terribly risky to um, invite the international risky. community and to to kind of destroy the authority of the Lebanese elite, but perhaps at the expense of uh, the Lebanese people? But this is this is exactly what I was saying. It's a catch twenty two. But at this point, I mean, I'm very much aware of you know all the imperial uh, uh, implications of this, and but it's not like we have other choices. Uh, um, we, I wish we had, and I definitely wouldn't want that to happen. But today we know that our economic crisis is also—I mean, it's part of this broader system. And I'm not—I'm not under the illusion that the international community will save us. But I'm saying if we can pressure and use our leverage here and there to uh, salvage a bit of uh, what we can salvage, then then I'm not uh, personally opposed to that. And this is not definitely not an invitation for any uh, imperial power uh, uh, you know to uh, to to come to come here and decide but uh, uh, but just the context is that this is this is a country where you have several empires that are already here and that are that are already meddling in uh, uh, you know and what is happening and this explosion is probably not an accident it's part of that uh, broader scene so i'm uh, you know i'm careful in saying this but i also say i also think that uh, pressure means 
that we need, you know, the same way, uh, I mean, I don't know uh, about the politics of um, our listeners today, but I personally uh, believe that Bashar al-Assad is a war criminal, right? And I think that, uh, uh, you know, pressuring uh, uh, these, these regimes is important, not because we believe in uh, uh, the West, but uh, because uh, be, because this is one of the tools that we can uh, maybe use, and this is not just in the West. This is everywhere. I mean, one one important actor today that no one is really talking about seriously is Russia. Um, where are the Russians from this explosion in Lebanon, and why why do we not hear about uh, their role? They were amongst the first to arrive to the Lebanese port. The the ship. That uh, that brought uh, the 2,750 tons of uh, nitrate is a Russian ship. It arrived in 2013, uh, uh, just uh, you know, a few months after the chemical attack in Syria. I'm not trying to say that these are necessarily linked, but I think after 2013, we cannot talk about geopolitics in this part of the Middle East without accounting for all the different players, and Russia is one of them. So today we are dealing with all these different types of, uh, you know, imperial powers, whether regional or or uh, global. And, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I mean, I wish we could have, as I said, and I've been calling uh, for a national libera liberation front uh, to to be formed. Uh, but I also, uh, you know, I also know that the possibilities of that, and you know, with the complexity of the situation in the region, uh, it's difficult to say that no one will uh, will uh, interfere everyone is interfering and uh, it's it's unfortunate but this is what it is yeah so i mean i think finally turning to something which touches very directly on that question of foreign interference uh, and the international community and its attempt to provide tutelage uh, to to different countries including lebanon uh, is the question of the hariri verdict which is due i think you said on the 18th mm. of august um yeah. you said everyone already kind of already expects what the verdict will be but do you think the announcement will sway things in any way will that be another element which might shift dynamics within lebanon uh, and also in relation to to syria and in, and so on yeah. yes uh, i think it will and i think uh, i mean again i'm i don't i don't i'm not a conspiracy theorist and i don't want to uh, but uh, you know the timing of the uh, of the explosion uh, is is also i mean there's a question mark there and what we've been hearing here is that the coming days are going to be very dangerous. Everyone is saying that, you know, this weekend is going uh, to witness another big event. And yes, I think this verdict, although uh, probably we know what it's going to be, but I, but it would be it will be used politically. Uh, um, and and you know now the the negotiation table is is there and everyone is sitting around it and they will use every bit uh, of. Uh, uh, you know, uh, whatever they have to uh, to uh, uh, you know to push um, uh, to, to one side or the other. So I think this will definitely be used in, in whatever is being cooked uh, for this re for for this country, but really this region. And we cannot think about the politics in Lebanon uh, detached from Syria. I mean, Lebanon has two borders only: uh, uh, an enemy state, uh, 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 you know, the occupied Palestine uh, by, by Israel on, on uh, our so southern uh, borders and Syria on all our other borders. So we cannot really think, and, and then the sea, the Mediterranean Sea and our, our access to that sea through the port that no longer exists. 
so so geopolitically we are really uh, you know trapped uh, uh, so it's impossible to think about any development in, in Lebanon without accounting for Syria and for Israel and all the players in both countries yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe we should uh, leave that here. Um, I did want to ask you of how you see things unfolding in the next couple of days and, and months. But um, I think there's so many moving pieces that uh, that all like I guess we can we can say is that I hope you wish you all the best in, in you know, trying to overturn uh, and hold accountable uh, the ruling class, which has led Lebanon into the situation it's in right now. Yeah, I, th- I mean, unfortunately, I'm not uh, optimistic for the for the coming weeks uh, or months. Um, uh, I think a war is a, is a you know is unfortunately uh, very probable. Uh, it will either be a war or uh, or um, you know a deal that is uh, going to reproduce uh, um, the same uh, rulers uh, with a redistribution of power uh, that they will negotiate. In both cases, it, this is going to be. Uh, you know, detrimental for the Lebanese uh, population and for not just the Lebanese, but all residents of this country, uh, whether it's uh, Syrian refugees, the Palestinian refugees, uh, but also, you know, the the hundreds of thousands of uh, Asian domestic workers who who live in this country. This will have implications on everyone. And, um, you know, I mean... Well, let, let, let's hope it's neither a stitch up nor a war and uh, maybe hopefully a revolution instead. Uh, Rima, thank you very much for joining us and taking the time to talk to us. There's probably more to be said about this. I mean, it's a very difficult question uh, regarding the international community. And especially when we talk about the international community, we tend to always think about states necessarily. Uh, but there's also, you know, international solidarity that can come from uh, not just the states, but uh, people and comrades and other organizations abroad that can, uh, you know, that can uh, help in terms of solidarity, but also in terms of pressuring their, their governments and, and some uh, you know, when needed. And I think this is very important. So when I, so, you know, uh, um, I, I think meeting with embassies is a, is a you know, is a, is a clear no, no line for me and I would never do it. And uh, although, you know, since October, um, many of us have been invited by embassies repeatedly, but uh, uh, a lot of us have refused. But I think this is one type of, uh, and this is clearly imperial uh, intervention, right? Uh, but there's something else, which is which is things like what we're doing now, and it's uh, creating those networks, uh, uh, you know, beyond the borders, where uh, where we talk to each other, where we where where people abroad can can put pressure, can help in different ways uh, that are not just charity, not just sending donations, but also uh, political. Yeah, well, I mean, it would be good if if you wanted to tell us any way that listeners could. Uh, could help, you, you know, charitably or beyond that politically as well. Um, that would be helpful, and and we'll include any links as well in in the in the show notes. Yeah, I can send I can send a few links, uh, but I'm 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 thinking more in terms of you know when I when I say, when I speak about freezing the assets of the oligarchs. Uh, just last week, we discovered that uh, one of the main bankers in Lebanon uh, has bought a, a flat in New York for ten million dollars. 
at a time when we don't have access to any dollar uh, from from the very same bank. Um, so so it's through net through those networks uh, and and through solidarity that you know we talked with comrades in New York and they mobilized there and, and you know they, so, and now uh, they're they're trying to uh, you know we're trying to take a legal. Uh, broad uh, uh, against that. I'm not saying that I, you know, again, I, it's not about believing in the legal system or believing that this will change the world, but things like that can be, uh, can be useful at this point. The level of the, the level of misery is, is unconceivable. And, and at this point we need to do those things. We, we don't have uh, uh, alternatives, right? Unless we turn into an, an armed uh, resistance movement.